When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello listeners, it's Wendy here. I wanted to give a trigger warning before this episode. I've just been speaking to Alex, who is a public health researcher. He is a very lovely man, incredibly knowledgeable about public health, the history of public health, the history of pandemics. And we talk about all of that and we talk about death in quite some detail. And it's not going to be for everyone. Some people might find this upsetting. So If you think you might fall into that category, I would skip this podcast and move on to our next podcast, which will be, no doubt, a lighter one about Spurs. If you're interested in hearing more about the spread of viruses and the impact that that could potentially have on football, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Alex is amazing. He's incredibly knowledgeable and and incredibly lovely. So if you do listen, enjoy. And if this isn't for you, then we'll see you next time. Welcome, listeners, to a bonus episode of The Extra Inch. My name is Wendy, and I'm joined by Alex Benham. Alex, hello. Can you introduce yourself and explain why we're having this conversation? Hello, Wendy. Yeah, um, so I guess we're having this this sort of interview or talk to talk a little bit about um, football, uh, Project Restart, the plans to like deal with coronavirus and uh, how to get back to playing. And I guess the reason that you are interested in talking to me is my research. Uh, I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Oxford and my research is on infectious diseases and how the British state responds to them, uh, particularly uh, bubonic plague, tuberculosis and HIV. Absolutely fascinating and it's really, really timely, obviously, uh... Uh, the research you're doing is timely with everything that's going on in the world. Uh, that must have been quite surreal when this hit for you, given that you're you kind of you're already getting used to how uh, nations respond to infectious diseases. To, to, for this to happen in the middle of your PhD, it must have been quite a surprise. It it was incredibly bizarre. Like um, for the last few months, I suppose my work's been mainly involved reading sort of thousands and thousands of pages of reports on the plague in Mumbai at the end of the 19th century during like the British Raj when uh, my Britain effectively ruled India and uh, I was actually in like a very strange coincidence I was back in January in the British Library and I had all these like huge hardback reports sort of laid out on the desk in front of me and I was taking a break from reading and I was just sort of like leaning back and like scrolling on Twitter and I saw 
someone sharing this article about this really strange cluster of pneumonia cases in Wuhan in China. And like at the time, it sort of barely registered. But now, like reflecting, that was the first time that I'd heard about coronavirus. And yeah, I think that's the weird thing about my work. The sort of past and the present sort of collides in strange ways all the time. So sort of the last pandemic is always sort of blurring into the into the next one that comes. So yeah, it's it's been really surreal. Um, it feels like you're kind of caught up in two plagues at once. Um, but yeah, it's it's really strange. And you got in touch with us because you listened to us talking about the response, basically, the, the, the what the Premier League are planning to do in terms of potentially bringing Premier League football back. And you've got some views. Uh, I think we should, before we get into what your views are, let's talk a little bit about some of the research you've done previously. So I find this stuff fascinating. Uh, tell us about the Mumbai plague first. If that's sure. Okay, Alex. No, absolutely. And I think that's like a like a really good place to start. Uh, not least because it's probably like most fresh in my mind, and also because it's sort of completely conditioned how I think about the like current response to coronavirus. And like, I don't think you can separate these things at all. Um, they're so entangled together. Like me reading that article in in the archive about coronavirus, it it kind of mirrors reality, right? These these things are always happening in these like complex entanglements, rather than as like discrete events one after the other. So the research that I've been doing at the moment is really interested in how like the British colonial authorities responded to the Mumbai plague. Um, so the first thing that I think I want to say about this is that the British response to the plague in Mumbai was kind of defined by three key aspects. So the first one of these was denial. So doctors in Mumbai first started informing the British of cases of plague as early as May 1896. Um, but the British didn't actually officially acknowledge the presence of the plague until October, a full six months later. Now, anyone with any basic understanding of how an infectious disease spreads, particularly one as contagious as the bubonic plague, would understand that that's pretty disastrous. Um, but this was then compounded when the British eventually acknowledged that there was a true case of the plague in Mumbai in October, the British then refused to shut down any of the factories or the port in Mumbai. And, you know, this is at the moment at which Mumbai is probably one of the biggest ports in the world, responsible for the vast majority of the fabric trade out of India, which is the largest industry in India at the time. Um, and the British refused to shut down any of the operations of the city because they were convinced that it would hurt the function of the colonial economy. And in a distressingly, like, obvious trajectory, by late autumn, the death rate from the plague was a thousand a month by early 1897 it was 500 a week um there was general panic almost half the population of the city of mumbai fled and you read these reports and the officials are genuinely considering the collapse of one of the largest cities in the world um you know the third or fourth largest city in the empire might simply cease to function um so the first response you get is denial and the second is just a refusal to act and then the third one is blame um the british didn't take responsibility for any of this um, um, instead, the reports constantly try and blame the spread of the disease on the supposedly filthy habits of the Indian population. So instead of seeking the real causes of the disease, the British content themselves with demolishing people's houses, flushing the sewers with five million gallons of carbonic acid, um, which of course, you know, bubonic plague is spread by fleas on rats. Flushing the sewers, demolishing houses merely flushes the rats out of their normal nests. Oh, wow, um, yeah. And spread the plague even further. It's kind of a, it's a catastrophe. It ultimately killed over 180 thousand people in the city alone 8.5 million people in india as a whole it's uh it was an absolute atrocity and it was utterly compounded by the denial the refusal and the blame of the british authorities and the reason that i'm saying all of this is that from this comes this very strange
strange British approach to contagion control, which is sometimes hands-off and sometimes it's an iron fist, and it claims to be led by science, but it only listens to a very particular form of the science that it wants to hear. And ultimately, this approach always values the economy over the lives of the general population. And I guess that might hint at why I think it's important to talk about that today. Mm. And I guess the, the counter-argument in today's society is that if we don't think about the economy, then there will be problems for the wider population down the line. And I think everyone would agree that it's important that we have a stable economy to be able to support the most needy in, in society. But at the same time, this is a life or death situation. Absolutely. And, you know, people will die based yeah. upon the decisions the government make. And Absolutely. I think, it's, you know, you, you can't have one of those things without the other. But equally, I, I guess it, it depends where you stand on accepting uh, deaths in in certain portions of, of the of society, because that is essentially what you're doing with some of the decision making. Um, it's, re- it's really fascinating that this is essentially the same situation as what happened in Mumbai in 1896. 1896. Uh, obviously, society has changed hugely since then. How how um, how quickly did it spread outside of Mumbai? So we tend to think of this as the, the beginning of the, the third plague pandemic. Uh, it spreads all over the world. Um, incredibly rapidly. Uh, it starts out in Hong Kong in 1894, uh, then to Mumbai in 1896. It reaches, uh, it actually reaches the shores of, of Britain, of the UK. Uh, it gets to Glasgow and kills a series of people in, in around the port in Glasgow. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't peter out until the 1920s and it kills millions and millions of people worldwide. Um, wow. And unlike what will probably happen with coronavirus, yeah, this, this stuck around until almost the 1920s. Um, it, the bubonic plague, it's the third great plague uh you know scholars would say that you know the first one is the justinian plague which brings the end of the roman empire the second is the black death which brings the end of feudalism um and the third one is this which in a way that 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 pandemic brings about the start of the end of colonialism um it's responsible for you know apartheid in south africa begins because of the the spread of the bubonic plague through south africa um the start of a lot of indian anti-colonial politics begins in resistance to the authoritarian british plague policies you know yeah if the first plague didn't lead to the end of the Roman Empire, the second leads to the end of feudalism. I think you could make a genuine argument that the third, the third plague pandemic starts the end of colonialism. Well, I, I get the feeling you could go even deeper on this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, you, you, you really know your stuff, Alex. Um, the other uh, similar pandemic that you wanted to discuss was the Spanish flu. Yeah, yeah, and I think should we, like, should we talk should we talk about that as well? And uh, in particular, that does have a link to football. So that's yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, I think this is the moment at which we can like really start to see. Uh, even stronger tie to the to our own time and to the beyond decisions that we're we're facing now. So it's staggering to me that the Spanish flu is so little discussed. Um, I would argue that along with the plague, it's one of the most important events in the entirety of human history. Uh, you know, the Spanish flu infected one in three human beings on Earth, around 500 million people. Uh, it killed somewhere between 50 million and 100 million, which is, you know, around 2.5 to 5% of the global population. It's staggering, and yet it's so little remembered or discussed. Um, it's probably the single greatest loss of human life in history. Uh, you know, 
the First World War is 17 million people dying. The Second World War is 60 million dying. If we're considering a pandemic that kills 100 million, it's on a different scale. Um, but the reason I think the Spanish flu is particularly important to us and to what we're talking about today is that it remains the best historical model we have for a global pandemic in the modern world. Um, people ask me why I'm interested in the Spanish flu, and I point out that the Public Health England contingency plan, which all of the government's initial policies were based upon, is based itself on studies of the Spanish flu. Um, you know, the model for the worst case scenario, which that first PHE plan is based on, is the Spanish flu. <laughs> you know, it's the source of the concern we have about a second wave of coronavirus that's modeled on the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu is the source from the past, which gives us the kind of present understanding we have of a historical model for contagious disease. So yeah, when people say, oh, why are we thinking about history? We should be thinking about science. I say, well, all of the science is based on history. <laughs> there's, there's no understanding that we have, which isn't based on our historical experiences of pandemic. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know where you want to go next, Chris. I can, I can give a sort of general idea of what the Spanish flu was. I'm not sure about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to know a little bit more about how it compares with coronavirus, for example. If you know that kind of infection rate, the death rate, that kind of thing. Yeah. Also, when it when it occurred. Because, I, I mean, I know of the Spanish flu, but I know no details about it. So, I think probably the first thing to say about it is Spanish flu wasn't from Spain. Um, the only reason that people think Spanish flu is from Spain and the only reason it gained that name was that Spain was neutral during World War One. Um, so, the only reason that people thought the Spanish flu was Spanish is that the Spanish newspapers were openly reporting on it. Um, in the countries that were at war at the time, Britain, Germany, France, the newspapers suppressed news of the disease because they were terrified it would affect public morale. Um, the only place that was openly reporting it was Spain, and therefore all of the reports seemed to be coming from Spain. Um, it was a classic example of reporting bias, but that's the reason that it's called the Spanish flu. Um, it was a pandemic caused by a subtype of the influenza A virus, H1N1. Um, it was an unusually severe strain uh, and actually it appears to have originated in the US. We have very good uh, evidence pointing to the first case being on the 4th of March 1918 uh, in an army base at Camp Funstone in Kansas. Um, and the reason this is important is obviously we're in the context of the First World War, the last year of the First World War, um, and we're in the context of the US joining the war on the side of the Allies. Um, and from the soldiers at Camp Funston, the virus spreads across America throughout the month of March. But then when the American troops are sent to France in April of 1918 to fight in World War One, they take the virus with them from America to France. And by May 1918, the virus has reached Italy, Spain, North Africa, India and Japan. It spreads astonishingly quickly. Um, and then it starts to recede in the summer and almost vanishes. And just as everyone's getting a little bit complacent and think things have gone back to normal, they're hit by a second, much, much worse way. Um, and that's when most of the mortality actually happens. Most global deaths occur in an absolutely catastrophic 13-week period between mid-September and mid-December 1918. You know, the second wave of the virus is where I think we probably see 30 or 40 million of those deaths. And why is that? Is it is it that people just let their guard down and stop taking the preventative actions that they were taking with the first wave? Is it that a particular event happened that meant that it was spreading more quickly? It's probably because there was actually a mutation in the virus itself. Right. Um, we're not entirely sure why that would have been, but it was potentially in a series of enormous field hospitals in France near the trenches, uh, where there were tens of thousands injured soldiers living in very close proximity with animals. Um, a lot of those soldiers had been exposed to mustard gas, um, which has not only debilitating effects on 
the soldiers' immune systems, obviously, and their general health, but potentially also mutagenic factors. It appears that there was a very sudden mutation in the virus itself, and that led to it becoming immensely more fatal and, and more dangerous. And that's why the death rate. I don't think it becomes more infectious necessarily, it just becomes a lot more dead. Um, but yeah, so yeah, and then I, so I, I guess that's the kind of like global context. And then yeah, I don't know, should, should we say something more explicitly about Britain? Because I guess that's the context we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Spanish flu reaches Britain in May 1918, and the government kind of refuses to act. I mean, some people would say that it had biggest bigger things on its mind at the time with the war, but the disease spreads really rapidly, um, and it starts to spread panic in sort of tightly enclosed areas of generally poor working-class people. So in Glasgow and Sheffield, there are panic around loads of people just starting to die. Um, and in July, over 700 people die of influenza in London. Um, so the chief medical officer of the local government board, which at the time was probably the like most directly powerful medical position in the country, uh, which is a man called Sir Arthur, Sir Arthur Newshall, recommends an early form of social distancing, um, so measures to restrict large crowds, um, to prevent overcrowding on public transport, things that we'd recognise today as, yeah, sort of prototypical forms of social distancing. And he recommends this in July 1918, but the government buries them. Uh, it buries his report because the government is so keen to carry on with the war effort, and Newsholm's recommendations are clearly going to interfere with the factory workers producing munitions, with uh, the functions of the government, and that that is simply not permissible. So use whole social distancing measures are rejected. And at first, this doesn't seem to have been particularly bad, but then it quickly becomes clear that this was a massive miscalculation. Um, in September 1918, the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, contracts the virus um, and becomes almost fatally ill and basically That's survives a, by this. Such industry. a strange parallel. Yeah, exactly. You come across this so often, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. <laughs> yeah, that's a lovely phrase. Um, wow. But yeah, and then, so the Prime Minister becomes sick and that kind of marks the moment at which it gets really, really bad. Um, by October, there were 4,500 deaths a week. Um, you have dozens of people collapsing on the streets of London. There was a shortage of coffins. You have council workers being drafted into big graves. Um, and while schools outside of London are being rapidly closed, officials in the capital refuse to shut them down and they turn them into hotspots of infection. So in London alone, influenza is killing 96 children a week. And what was particularly brutal about Spanish flu was it disproportionately targeted people between the ages of 30 and 45, but also young children. Um, and that's something which I think we're starting to see with coronavirus. So to answer your early question, uh, Wendy, about how many people died in Britain, that was 228,000, um, which is a death toll. If we're looking at an excess mortality at the moment from coronavirus of at least 50,000, um, so what I'm doing there is I'm extrapolating. I'm not just taking the direct reporting of statistics from the government. I'm using the National Office of Statistics reporting of excess deaths. So what we do is we take the average from a normal year and then we apply it to see how many more deaths we've had this year. And that gives us a pretty good model for coronavirus. The Financial Times has been doing some excellent work on this. Yeah, yeah, I've been really enjoying that myself. And that's something that I would not, it wouldn't have occurred to me before I started reading what the Financial Times were doing. But it, of course, makes sense because yes of course not all these people would have i mean these weren't necessarily healthy people that are dying that often they had yeah. uh, underlying conditions yeah. but that's not to say that this isn't the cause of death absolutely. They, they would have gone on to live for many more years were it not for this absolutely and yeah i think like that's that's exactly the thing you know just because someone is sick doesn't mean that therefore it's okay if they die i mean if that were the 100%. case what is the point of having a health service <laughs> like you know why bother with 
medicine if you are just already consigning someone to the grave as soon as they start showing some symptoms. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I mean, I would say that that is the long and short of the Spanish flu in Britain. It's again compounded by denial, refusal and blame on the part of the authorities. This same strange approach to contagion control, which is sometimes hands-on, sometimes hands-off, sometimes an iron fist, sometimes the softest glove. It claims to be science-led, but it only listens to the science it wants to hear. And it values the economy consistently again and again over the lives of the general population. So you can probably see where I'm going with this. It's the government's response to coronavirus has been defined by exactly the same characteristics we see in the Spanish flu, exactly the same characteristics as we see in the Mumbai plague. You know, these histories are important. Mm. Out of interest, how much support did the the sort of chief medical officer have for his social distancing measures? Was it was he a lone voice or were there other people sort of saying similar things? On a district level, there were actually um, officials who were considerably more active. So, for example, actually really interestingly in Manchester, uh, the chief medical officer there of the district, uh, a guy called Niven, um, manages to override the kind of central government's position and institute a strong form of social distancing. And until November, Manchester, by shutting cinemas, shutting schools or maintaining social distancing in the streets, actually managed to have have one of the lowest death rates um, in the country. What happens is on November the 11th, when armistice is declared, uh, there's a sudden rush of people into the streets, the factory workers and the soldiers mingle in crowds of 10,000. Niven is looking on with despair. And within a week, you're seeing a rise of deaths into from maybe 30 or 40 a week to over 300. Um, so Manchester is a really good example of the kind of disastrousness of abandoning social distancing. But also that, yeah, um, there was an attempt he wasn't alone uh, in, in Newton wasn't alone in, in pushing for this there were other people who were arguing for it but the general public didn't really know what was happening you know mm. a lot of people it wasn't reported in the news the first report wasn't in London it was in Glasgow and it wasn't until pretty late on into sort of June July time this wasn't well reported at all people didn't really know what was going on yeah I guess it's a very different situation back then yeah. because they don't have the same means Absolutely. of mass communication and also they don't have social media yeah. so yeah, you don't which have is completely changed count, position, countless yeah. opinions <laughs> being being said yeah, into the void, which um which just creates noise basically. So let's talk a little bit about how this impacted on football. Yes. Because there's a there's a direct link there, isn't there? Absolutely. So I think the first thing to say about football uh, is obviously that the League and FA Cup were eventually suspended for World War One, but really interestingly, they weren't suspended immediately. There was a 1914 to 1915 season um, uh. in which Tottenham finished bottom <laughs> and were eventually relegated. Uh, there's a whole controversy that we can get into probably at another and less important time about the fact that Arsenal finished finished fifth in League Two, but somehow got promoted anyway. And that's probably to do with their chairman, Henry Norris, either bribing the league or Mm. blackmailing the chairman of the league, McKenna. But yeah, even though the league itself and the FA Cup were suspended post-1915, they actually continued with a series of regional leagues. Um, So White Hart Lane had been requisitioned by the War Office at the time um, for use as part of uh, the production of munitions, uh, weapons for the front line. Um, So we actually played some of our games at Highbury. So... (laughs) 
adding even more bizarre circumstance, I think. But there was actually quite a lot of football being played. I think each of the teams in the in the regional league in London played 36 games. Um, Chelsea, for example, played three home games in November 1918. Uh, Brentford, Millwall and us. And each time in front of crowds of more than 10,000 people. So this is at the very height of uh, the pandemic. Um, you've got thousands and thousands of people dying every month. Uh, and in this month in which top, like Chelsea play in front of crowds of 10,000 people, Chelsea as a local area sees 100 deaths directly from influenza. So I haven't had the time to do enough modelling or, or research into this, but it, it certainly appears that there was some effect of playing games. It's hard to quantify without more research, but from a tentative early perspective, you would be saying that 10,000 people gathered in a tightly enclosed space for a respiratory virus spread by droplets is not a good thing. Um, and yeah, but despite this, um, in January 1919, the, the following year, um, the FA decided to prepare for resuming the league proper in August um, and this was despite the obvious danger presented by football to both players and staff, so to go back to Chelsea just because the Chelsea historians uh, group has been doing some excellent research on it, um, so two players, uh, Logan and Ford, both contracted the disease as did two of the club's vice presidents Hayes Fisher and Johnson Hicks um, but actually even more tragically elsewhere footballers have begun to die one of the most notable was Angus Douglas the Scottish international and the former Chelsea outside right, but also Jack Allen, who was a forward for the Nottingham Forest, and John Pattinson, who was a winger for Doncaster Rovers. And all of these players were under 35 when they died. Uh, Douglas was just 29. And even more tragically, Douglas's wife also died of the virus within days of Douglas, so leaving their very young daughter orphaned. And clearly not all of these deaths are caused by football, but the games undoubtedly were a source of infection, and the decision to keep playing, let alone and resume the league was hugely irresponsible. So even if those individual players may not have been playing football at the time, there are other players who I'm sure have gone missed and there will be countless members of the crowd and the staff who will simply never show up in the records as having the disease. And is there any record of how uh, these players contracted the virus? Was it that they were, I don't know, put at risk particularly through football or just through general everyday life at the time? So I think with the, at least, at least with Angus Douglas, he wasn't playing football at the time. And it appears that that was probably contracted through a munitions factory that he was working in, because this was obviously prior to the point at which, you know, some of these players were professional. And obviously during the war, a lot of them couldn't play anyway. So they were taking one other job. But with the two players at Chelsea who contracted it, Logan and Ford, I would say there's a very strong probability that they contracted contracted it while playing for the club. Um, just because, you know, they contracted it almost at the same time as the club's vice president's getting it, it just seems that there's a cluster there that would at the very least seem to suggest... <laughs> that would seem to suggest that um, they may have contracted it in course of playing football for Chelsea. So, yeah, I, I would say more research needs to be done before it's saying anything definitive, but it's pretty suggestive. And you've been looking, Alex, at Project Restart, basically, yeah. and, and and what the plans are and what you perceive the risks to be, yeah. um, not just for fans, but for employees of football clubs, including the players. Do you want to talk a bit about what you know about Project Restart first? Absolutely. Um, so, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has a pretty good idea of what Project Restart is, as it's been basically the only thing for football fans to talk about for the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Um, but for those who don't, or for people who want it clarified, Project Restart is the Premier League's plan for a return to football 
people, which seems to be targeting the 18th of May for a return to training and either the 8th or the 12th for a return to actual matches, uh, to actual playing. Um, so from a sort of professional perspective, as someone who works in public health, uh, as a researcher, I'm only really interested in Project Restart in terms of the risks it poses to the health of those involved. And I think I should say at this point, I am fundamentally opposed to Project Restart from a purely professional position. I think that it poses a grave risk to the health of players and staff, and I don't think this can be mitigated within the current national context. So Project Restart hinges on three main health measures, um, which everyone was probably familiar with. It depends on closed-door games, on limiting non-essential contact, and a new regime of screening and testing. So removing spectators certainly gets rid of the risk to match day fans. We probably don't need to worry about that too much, but I am severely concerned about the other measures, which I think will significantly fail to provide proper protection for players and staff. So if, if it's useful to people, I'll just give a quick rundown of like the way that Project Restart is actually going to work from a kind of like medical perspective. Um, and then I'll just kind of explain why I think this is deficient or risky. Um, so firstly, when the players come back, every player will have to undergo a thorough risk assessment um, before returning to training. So this is to diagnose potential heart issues or breathing problems, uh, as those are clearly factors which would place those players at greater risk were they, God forbid, to contract COVID-19. Secondly, every player and member of staff will have to pass this newly invented COVID-19 antigen test, um, which is called a CAT test, um, which they'll have to pass in 40, within 48 hours before returning to group training. So after the resumption of training, these CAT tests are going to try and happen twice a week, and that's the minimum for the league. Uh, when they arrive at training, all players will have to carry out a questionnaire uh, about their general health and be temperature screened uh, for a basic measure to try and guard against people with symptoms of coronavirus entering the training ground and after training formally resumes they will have to do this every day there will be a daily practice screening uh, during training all unnecessary contacts must be avoided so the two dis two meter distancing that we're all trying to practice at the moment must be established within the training ground at almost all time and if it's lost presumably if players come into direct physical contact with each other it must be restored as soon as possible um, all medical staff are going to have to wear personal protection equipment where they're going to get that from maybe unclear at the moment mm -hmm. training grounds will have a one-way system uh it's it seems at first relatively cohesive and comprehensive and i think that's led a lot of people to presume that because it seems it it must be it i am much more skeptical about this so project restart wants to test players twice a week and screen them every day to complete the season with what 92 matches left that could be about 40,000 tests i think that's the bbc's estimate of how many might be needed i think it might be more than that with this approach, I can see three key problems. So the first of these is testing. Um, so one of the biotech companies which are marketing this novel CAT test, um, E25 Bio, which is based out in Cambridge, uh, predicts its tests will be about 90 to 95% accurate. And, and this sounds great, uh, but I have my doubts. Uh, to quote Alan Wells, who is uh, a very esteemed medical director of clinical laboratories at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, CAT testing would be in his words, a total game changer, except for one aspect, it won't work. The CAT test, for people who are not familiar with it, depends on getting a sample of the virus from someone's nasal passage. Um, the problem is, in adults, the quantity of the virus in the respiratory system and in the nasal passage varies hugely from person to person. 
So the antigen test we use for influenza, for example, has a sensitivity of less than 50%. Uh, and very worryingly, this is similar for almost all respiratory viruses I can think of. Um, E25 bio's claim of 90% sensitivity is based on testing laboratory samples where you have uh, probably a very cohesive quantity of the virus in each sample, not the messy uncertainty of actual patients. Um, so in terms of testing, I am profoundly worried and I'm not a specialist on testing, but I believe I have like a, a general understanding of it. And within that general understanding, I'm extremely concerned that it will so not be capable. There's, there's a risk of false negative, yeah. false negative with the testing. Yeah. But not just that, you then extrapolate that across the 40,000 tests that Absolutely. are going to be required. Absolutely. And Wendy. it becomes way more risky. Absolutely. Even at 90 to 95% accuracy, which is the best possible scenario that we could have and one which I don't think we will ever see. That's not good enough. Like 90 to 95% over 40,000 tests. <laughs> Anyone with a basic grasp of mental arithmetic can tell you that's a lot of failures. That's a lot of times that we tell people that they've got the virus when they haven't. But it's also a lot of times where we tell people they haven't got the virus and they have. Uh, and, and we're putting people into situations where they could contract a virus and frankly put themselves at risk, but also put their loved ones at risk absolutely, as well. Absolutely. And I think this then comes into the second point. So the Premier League and defenders of its approach would probably argue that that's okay. If there are problems with the testing, there is a safety net, which is the screening, the daily screening, which involves a symptom check and a um, like a, like a written symptom check and also uh, a temperature check. The problem is COVID-19 is infectious in both pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic forms. And in some of the early preprints I'm reading uh, of studies, both in Italy and in China, COVID-19 may actually be at its most infectious amongst people who are showing no symptoms at all, uh, which is obviously extremely concerning, not least if your safety net is dependent on screening people for symptoms. So symptom screening, in my mind, is extremely unreliable and does not offer a, a proper safety net. I think that then takes us to the third problem, which is the only other measure that the Premier League have for the safety of the players and staff is distancing. Um, now, most of these measures rely on trusting players and staff who have trained in set ways, sometimes for decades, if you think of people like Mourinho, um, for their whole sporting lives if you think of some of the youngsters in our academy who've come through academy you know all of these elite players have been training since they were tiny children they've been training in particular ways it's going to require an absolute transformation of that training to prepare for an elite contact sport with an absolute minimum of contact and you know as Tottenham fans we've seen our squad already fail to maintain basic social distancing measures already I am extremely doubtful they're going to manage that for weeks of intensive training especially when those players will have been given the false confidence of a test which they're told is way more reliable than it may actually be. Um, it's staggering to me that we can be giving this players the false confidence probably to think, well, I tested fine this morning. Why should I worry about going heavily into this challenge with this player or like putting my arm around someone? If you're told that you're safe, your behaviour mirrors that. And I think we're giving people a confidence which we're not actually capable of providing. Um, so under this regime, I believe it is on the balance of probabilities, extremely likely that there will be false negatives in the CAT test and that asymptomatic players will have the opportunity to spread the virus amidst the squads. Um, and I honestly, without wishing to be, you know, dramatic, this would be catastrophic. I mean, even if nobody dies, which is a very real possibility, the available evidence points to serious long-term consequences of COVID-19, um, particularly to the respiratory and cardiovascular system. For a professional athlete, you know, severe symptoms could well be career-ending. Even if you survive, it's 
no guarantee that you will ever be the same again. Um, the other thing to add to that, Alex, is that, you know, there's a lot of talk in this country at the moment about people with underlying conditions. That's something I hear yeah. in, in my day job all the time. Yeah. And, you know, people don't people know about their underlying conditions because they've had symptoms and been yeah. diagnosed. Yeah. Not everyone is aware of the fact that they've got an underlying condition until it's too late often. You know, how many times has a, has a footballer died and then it's come to light afterwards that they had an underlying heart condition that yeah. was undiagnosed? Yeah. Um, and this is about, I mean, that's just the ones who've died. There's, there are bound to be footballers who have health problems that we're unaware of. I'm yeah. sure that the medical screening within football clubs is great, yeah. but at the same time, things will slip through in that. We know it yeah. has, we know it's happened before. It'll definitely happen again. So that, that's, I just wanted to put that point across because I think yeah. some people will say, you know, these are fit, healthy young men. Uh, the risk is relatively low in, in this group. And therefore, uh, if they're happy to do it, then it yeah. shouldn't be a problem. But I just don't think that's the reality. I think, you know, everyone's Im- impacted by this virus in different ways. And there will be things going on in, with people's physiology that we're just simply not aware of. And, you know, yeah, exactly. Exactly with you. And I, I'd say, like, you know, as Tottenham fans, like, if, if someone says that to me as a Tottenham fan, I would say, like, well, think of Hugo Echihog, uh, Think of, mm-hmm. like, Fabrice Mwamba. You know, mm-hmm. these were people who, to all intents and purposes, appeared to be in the prime of their condition, extremely healthy as either a young coach or a player they had been screened extensively by the club um and you know Mwamba thankfully survived Hugo Ahio tragically didn't and you know there are bound to be dozens of players like that if not more amongst the Premier League no matter how good your system is it's it's never going to be perfect and you know only one thing needs to go wrong for this to go fatally wrong uh, I yeah. think that's the thing to say you know this is not like football usually you know football usually is the most important of the least important things but now it's it's become entangled with something which is far more important than it's used to dealing with and I think that's led to a chronic misunderstanding, um, misunderstanding of, of how serious this is and and the potential consequences of it so I guess the question the wider question is are you prepared to allow deaths to happen amongst footballers in this country in order that we get our entertainment back that football clubs will survive financially unharmed i mean that's what it comes down to when when you when you get down to brass tacks that's what it comes down to and does it matter if a club goes out of business if it saves lives frankly um but but aside from that there there are ways of ensuring that um football clubs can survive financially anyway there's so much money in the game absolutely uh and and there are things that can be done so i presume then alex that you you think this is just the worst possible idea what when when do you think they should consider restarting when would be when would be appropriate in your eyes i think like you know it almost feels absurd to come on here like i I wanted to provide some expert advice but i really feel like danny rose has already said everything that needs to be said Mm. you know Mm. project restart is in his words utter bullshit you know i totally Mm. back what he said you know this is being sold as a public morale boosting exercise it's you know it's to boost people after a bad period and i think also probably to boost people in what is going to be a bad period again um sending people back to work when the government is doing so is extremely risky and is going to lead to more deaths and i think bringing back something as popular and entertaining as the premier league will help distract people from that um but footballers shouldn't give a fuck about the national nation's morale you know people's lives are at risk danny rose is entirely right football shouldn't even be spoken about coming back until the numbers have dropped massively and on that you know danny rose is entirely on the same page as a lot of like the best medical experts on this so um i think i would defer to dr michelle the who's the chairman 
chairman of the FIFA medical committee who said, from his personal opinion, football should not return until September. I think we should cancel the season, make plans for properly suppressing the virus and a safe return for the next season. Um, I think that that is the only ethical thing I can I can say from a professional perspective and also from a personal perspective as someone who has to go to work, who has, you know, loved ones, who has family. I cannot in all morality put another person of a similar age to myself in that position. I, I think it's wrong to ask footballers to risk their lives for our entertainment. Um, I think I would also say to preempt some criticism, people will say, well, what about Germany? Germany is an, in, an entirely different situation to us. The excess deaths in Germany are around 4,800 uh, above average. You know, as I said, in Britain, they're 50,000 above average. We are in an entirely different state of affairs to Germany. Germany suppressed the virus. They succeeded. That means that they can have sport back a lot earlier than Britain, which failed. Like, it's really as simple as that. Mm, that's their reward for doing things well. Yeah, they get their football absolutely. Back. If, if you suppress the virus, you get football back. It really is as simple as that. But yeah, mm-hmm. no, that would be my that would be my simple statement. Not until September. Not until we suppress the virus. You know, it might be... I think this eagerness to finish the league now so that we can get on with the next one also misses the elephant in the room, which is there's going to be a second wave. And I think football just isn't... The idea that we just return to normality from September is absurd. Next season is going to be a nightmare to finish. Next season is going to be harder to finish than this one. Just to finish, Alex, does your research give you any indication of when a second wave might happen? I mean, we're we're into we're into a, a realm which I would I would rather lead to epidemiologists. There, um, it's it's difficult to predict when the second wave is going to come from a historical perspective because what I'm used to studying is is not the same. I guess the closest model would be um, uh, the Spanish flu, which is also a respiratory virus, not coronavirus, an influenza virus but a respiratory droplet spread virus nonetheless. I would be astounded if we get to next winter without a second wave. Um, I would expect to see a second wave somewhere between October and January. But that's more based on epidemiology than on history. But mm. yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, this must... I can't get over the fact that you're you're studying this stuff as part of your PhD and then this is cropped up. Are you feeding yeah. in um, your learnings from coronavirus into your thesis? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be in there no matter what. And, you know, it's things like, I mean, coronavirus has meant that I've lost my job. Like, it's had effects on me in, in my personal life. It's impossible for your study to ever, like, be separate from your own lived conditions. And, yeah, I, it's it's certainly going to affect me uh, and, and the way that I'm writing about it. Um, and, yeah, I think it also shows that there's, like a necessity for this kind of work um my work is funded by the in part by the uk government and i guess this shows something useful which can be done right is that you know this kind of funding is important to fund this kind of research it, it's never enough but it it's important that this kind of work does get done i think on on history as well as on just like maths and science uh, there's something important about funding things which don't have an immediately obvious application because you never know what's going to happen next mm. this has been so fascinating alex thank you so much for keeping extra inch <laughs> listeners informed not at all this. Uh, an absolute um, pleasure as as a, I, I feel like no go on sorry i, I was just gonna say you know as as a you know devotee of the extra inch myself it, it's i was saying to you before we came on air how surreal it is to like hear your voice coming out of my headphones but to be you for you to be addressing me rather than like nathan or buddy it's it's the most <laughs> surreal fever dream thing um which as you were saying is is perhaps fitting in this time and place but absolutely i, I feel like people might have some follow-up questions for 
for you is there a way that they can get in touch with you on social media absolutely yeah um my twitter is at otomnia um i'll if you you can probably share that at the bottom it's difficult to spell at a u t underscore o m n i a uh you can follow me there i'm tweeting mainly about diseases and disasters um yeah that's probably the best place i try and respond to any comments if people have questions or have critiques or like furious condemnations uh send them to me there uh i'll respond to everything but yeah whatever people want to ask um thanks for listening and i'm sure there will be i'm sure there will be critique because people have opinions on something like this that affects everyone and it's it's fine to have opinions but as with everything i think it's even more fine to be better informed before forming those opinions and uh it's people like you alex that can keep us informed so thank you so much for your time it's been hugely hugely um important i think it's one of the most important podcast we've done so thank you and take care anytime Wendy. uh yeah sort of stay safe and uh yeah for when football returns eventually come on you space <laughs> you've been listening to the extra inch thanks to nathan a clark production thanks to barley for being italian thanks to adam gardner for the artwork thanks to david lindner for our intro music you can find him on twitter at davy shambles and soundcloud d lindner do check him out he's great, great, great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.